Amen. Amen. Good morning, Redemption Tempe. Now, they were much better at the first service. Good morning, Redemption Tempe. All right. That's what I want to hear. I'm excited this morning again to open up God's word. And this, this passage has been uh, especially dear to my heart. Um, and it should be dear to your heart. This is um, a prayer following the longest teaching that Jesus taught his followers that we have in Scripture. It's also the prayer that he prayed right before he went to the garden to then be arrested and crucified. So emotionally, this text that we have here in Scripture is, is unique. We see in chapter 18 that Jesus prays again. We really don't have um, any any text on that prayer, but we do know that during that prayer, he bled sweat. This is a, a very unique portion of scripture, and today we're going to be talking about what shapes you. What, what shapes you? Like most of you good Christians here would say, the scriptures shape, shape me, preacher. I, I, I read the scriptures and I do what they say. <coughs> but for many of us, there are other forces, I would say all of us, there are other forces in our life that have a powerful shaping component to them. Our schools shape us, our work, our communities, our family, our politics all shape us in certain ways. And we have to make sure that we're intentional to take what we see out in our lives, out in the world, and take them to Scripture so we conform their shaping to what the Scriptures say. Amen? Today, we're going to hear the heart of Jesus. We're going to see it on display in chapter 17. It is the last and most, most extensive teaching uh, prayer following a teaching that we had. I said that. But we should feel the love, the hope, the desire that they would have understood because his death is going to ignite a firestorm of persecution in their lives, and he wants them to be ready for this new life. This is, this is give, everything's going to change. This, this crucifixion that Jesus knows is coming, his death, he already knows it's coming. He's been telling his disciples, but they just didn't connect the dots. And so Jesus is praying after this teaching for some very specific things. Again, I said it's near and dear to my heart. I, I, uh, I always ask my wife and my son, if I'm going to use them in an illustration, I asked their permission. And so I had, I forgot, so I asked him on the way to church, and he said, sure, Dad. So the reason I said that is I understand to a degree what Jesus was feeling. My son's about, about to go to college, and any of you parents know, uh, he's our only child, any of you parents know when, when a child goes away, goes to college, goes into the military, that there's a lot of praying going on. 
We're praying for some very specific things. I've been praying for months that God would send him a spiritual advisor while he's at school, someone who would love and care for his soul, that, that, that the Lord would protect him from the evil one, that he will find success, that, that he won't get injured on the football field. And, and I'm just praying and pouring my heart out to God because up until this point, he's lived in our house and I had oversight over him. Now, I wouldn't say that we're helicopter parents, but we're definitely at least drone parents as it relates to my son. And so we, we, we've interacted with him a lot. We homeschooled him up until ninth grade. And so now he's going away. And, and I had to tell him, I said, you know, son, it's a little selfish, I think, my prayer, because as a parent, you kind of measure your parenting. I know this is wrong, but you measure your parenting by the success of your kids. If he gets into a lot of trouble, so if my son gets arrested and gets thrown off the football team and gets thrown out of school, it's going to reflect on, I must have failed as a parent. I'd get over it, but that's how I would initially feel, right? And so I'm, to some degree, it's a selfish prayer. But in another way, I really want the Lord to be with him as he goes and, and is on his own. And so in this prayer that Jesus prays, he's going away. And he knows, and he knows that the teaching that he's given them, he also knows the Holy Spirit is going to be on them. So he's going, they're going to receive power. <coughs> but there's going to be some things that that he wants them ready for. And there's going to be some things that he feels is important for them to know. So he lifts up prayers to the Father and prays a very specific prayer, wrapping the teaching that he just taught up in this prayer. So getting after the text, my, my, my first point is the cross-shaped vision of unity. The cross-shaped vision of unity. The title of my message is The Shaping Power of the Cross, right? So we're going to talk about today how we are shaped or should be shaped by biblical definition, not by Webster. So it's noteworthy when Jesus is transitioning uh, from this prayer. He first prayed for himself in John 17, 1 through 5. And then goes to praying for his disciples in 6 through 19. And now is the transition from verse 20 to 26. He prays for us. You and I. For those who would believe. This is a, a rarity in scripture. Most scripture is not written to us. This text is. And we're going to hear his heart as it relates to us, those who would believe. John 17, 21 says this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That they may all be one, just as the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father, that, they, that we may also be in the Godhead. 
Now, this echoes back to the vine motif of, of John 15, <coughs> where Jesus is explaining, I am the vine and you are the branches. You remember, amen? And, and what he's saying, and I explained this actually when I, I, I preached a message out of 15, that, that think of the Father as the root, Jesus coming out from the Father, and then the branches connected into the vine. Right? That's the picture that he's placing in their mind so that they would know everything that's in the root is going to be in the vine, and everything that's in the vine, the branches now have access to. So when he's talking about this unity, he uses a picture of Jesus and the Father. And so unity, first and foremost, is a theological truth. It's a theological truth. Christian unity flows out of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's where unity comes from. That's where it originates from. 2 Corinthians 5.15 puts it this way. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So in this text, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying that Jesus died for us, that now we who live no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died. And that is the group of us. He died for us, so now we live for him. We are unified around the death of Christ. Before I became a Christian, I lived for myself. It was about my job, my money, my house, my, my, me, me, me. Then when Jesus saved me and invaded my heart, it changed. It was no longer selfish but now I became selfless and I'm working on it still. But that's the Christian experience. The cross shapes our identity of unity. Spiritual unity in Christ is one flock, one shepherd, one church, and not just across space, but across time. Josh had said a uh, week before last, he said, if anyone asks you, when were you saved? Technically, you were saved 2,000 years ago at Calvary. And he was right. That this salvation that now we received changes us. You see, we're not a club, church. We're not an organization like the Elks right? We're not. We are a supernatural organism with the Spirit of God living amongst us, empowering us. We're, there, there is no entity on this planet like the church, and we have a king. But this is what our king says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Because of the cross, we share in the Trinitarian unity of the Godhead. That's the bar. The Godhead, the perfect unity of the Godhead is the bar. That's the picture. That is what we are to emulate. It's a picture 
of perfect unity. Unity is first theological. We are unified by the cross. Well, if that is true, here's a question. What what can a church or other believers say or do that would cause you to reject what Jesus is praying for you and I? Right? If we're, if we're brought, into, brought into unity through the cross and we are unified theologically, what is it that someone can do to you to cause you to separate? Whatever that answer is, you need to go back to the text. Because Jesus said nothing. You, we cannot be, and I don't even know if this is a word, we cannot be ununified. It can't be reversed. We are unified based on his atoning work on the cross. But here's a question. But will the church doesn't look unified? Church doesn't look unified at all. We are called, here's the answer to that question, We are called to become what we are. And I'm going to explain that. We are called to become what we are. That's not a unique idea to the scriptures. It's very common. We are sanctified, right? But we are being sanctified. We are holy, but yet we are becoming holy. We are righteous, but we are becoming righteous. This idea is uniquely biblical that God declares us to be one thing and then there's a process of us becoming what we are. The illustration that I love to use is is the illustration of a wedding. You have a minister that stands before this couple and the couple has all of her family and friends and all of his family and friends Right? And he also has a marriage license representing the authority of the law, the authority of the state. You also have the pastor who represents God, and you have the families. So they make promises that they will stay together forever in front of every authority that is in their life. That I will never leave you or forsake you. And God, in the midst of that ceremony, when they are pronounced man and wife, says, now you are one. And you walk out of the church, and the command is now become what you are. Anyone that's been married for a while knows that marriage is about becoming. You know, I, I met a couple, I saw some pictures uh, over the weekend. There was a wedding this weekend. I met a couple last week. They're getting married. I believe it's next week. And I met a beautiful couple and they're talking to me and they're all excited. And I'm sitting there going, they have no idea what they're getting into. <laughs> but they are to become one. What we see in the text is very interesting, and I believe Ephesians 4 sheds a little light on it. Ephesians 4, chapter 3 says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Be eager to maintain, that's something we already have, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what we see in churches is not that we are ununified, but we don't live in peace. That's what we're called to do. We're called not to fight. We don't fight each other. We don't separate from each other. We're to maintain the unity that was attained on the cross by Christ on our behalf, and we're to maintain that unity in the bond of peace. We're to live at peace with one another, no matter what. This is the cross shaping your vision of unity. Because if the cross doesn't shape, something else will. So using that same illustration of the wedding, marriage, if you go back to Ephesians, says something about Christ and the church, right? It says something about Christ and the church. And that's the picture that Paul is doing. He's doing this dance between the church and, and, and marriage. And what's being said in the text is that marriage is a picture of the church. And when we lie in our marriage by divorcing one another, we're lying about the character of God. That's why God hates divorce. Now, I'm not beating anyone over that's been divorced in, in our congregation this morning. I'm just staying in the text. Verse 21 is very important. There's, a, there's two little words there to say, it says, so that. It's called a purpose statement, so that. So we are to, to, to be one, we are to be unified so that the world may believe you sent me. Our unity says something. I, I, was, I mentioned in the first service last week I was here, and one of the things I noticed was there are a lot of pregnant women here at this church. I'm like, wow, there's an awful lot of pregnant women. And then I'm, I'm looking around, COVID, lockdown, COVID, lockdown, COVID, lockdown. Right? You can only watch so much Netflix, right? So this... The reason I said that is because this idea, this so that the world may believe that you sent me is pregnant with theological knowledge, with theological information. It's pregnant because if Jesus is saying <coughs> that we're to be unified so that the world would know you sent me, the question would be, why was he sent? Why was Jesus sent? People pick up on our unity and the message that they get is that Jesus was sent, which means that Jesus is Messiah. That's what he's getting at. He's getting at his Messiahship. The, the main truth that was being confronted um, back when Jesus was, was walking the earth was his Messiahship. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. Jesus is teaching over and over again, I am the long-awaited one. Your unity 
teaches or shows people that he is the Messiah. That there was something called the fall. And we fell out of relationship with God with no way to get back to him. We were lost. God developed this plan of redemption to bring us to him, to save us, to love us for all eternity. I love that um, I was reading through, uh, and I had, a, I had a gentleman call me uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were working through something in the text, and um, right after the curse, right after God curses the snake, there's an interesting passage, and it's Adam names Eve. He gives her a name. Now, my first thing, he said, why do you think God did that? My first thing was because he was really going to start a really big argument, and he wanted her to have a name so that he can address her properly, right? But that, that's not it. Um, her name is Mother of All Living. Now, here's the interesting thing that I thought was, 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 was wonderful, is you have the curse, and then you have the naming of Eve, Right? They, they could have had no idea that there were going to be any more people. But God made a promise to the snake. He said that there's going to be one that's going to come that's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. And then Adam names Eve the mother of all living. Redemption starts then. As soon as the curse was made, God put it in action. There's going to be people. And out of people is going to spring up Jesus. He was sent for this purpose, right? And this was something that was established before the foundation of the world. We're going to talk about that in a second. This is the heart of Jesus for his church, that we live and love one another, and that draws men to God. Amen? Which takes me to my next point, the cross-shaped vision of glory. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now, ultimately, the kind of glory in the text is, is what R.C. Sproul calls derived glory. One that's not inherent to humanity, but was stamped on all people originally as part of our, our being made in God's image. Genesis 1.26. It's not new. The glory was dimmed in the fall. We fell from something. And now it is being restored to its fullness in those who are united to Christ in an organism called the church. The glory of God in the sense that God is renewing our image by sharing with us the glory he has given to Christ. As the church fulfills its mission, the world can look at the church and say, God is at work there. This is an amazing, amazing truth. When, when you have someone, a visitor, an unbeliever, could be a believer, it doesn't matter, come into this body, what they should sense is the presence of God. They should get this sense that these are God's people. These people love one another. They love God. They should not pick up that this is some kind of fill-in-the-blank church. We get so much of that. Travel around. It's a cowboy church. 
a hipster church, of this church, of that church. But what about the church of Jesus Christ? And I'm not talking about the other one. But people should get this sense that God lives here amongst his people. And it, it's, it's not a leadership thing. You know who reflects that glory to people? You and I. It's, 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 it's the people they run into making coffee. The ones they see when they're greeted. It's the people that pray for those when they need prayer. It's the conversations. It's the love that we pour out, the concern that we give to one another. People should know that Jesus lives here because Jesus lives in us. The church reflects the divine glory. Listen to John 13, 34, and 35. Listen, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Here it is again. By this, another purpose statement, all men would know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what this text says. You don't tell people you're a Christian by having a tattoo of a cross or wearing a cross or talking Christianese. You let people know that you are a Christian by the way we love one another. This is corporate language. Are we a loving church? Or are we a church that when we come in here, we have blinders on and we just want to come find our seat, sit down, sing some songs, eat a cracker and some juice and go home and check it off on our calendar that I went to church that week. That's not what this is. There's no supernatural power in that. And there's nothing special about me. I don't. I, but but this just came to my that came to my head. I was I was sitting next to a couple last week, and and I just felt the Holy Spirit say, "Introduce yourself." So I said I said, "Hi, my name is is Will. What's your name?" And they told me their name, and they said they were getting married next week. And then we had a conversation. I said, me and my wife, we've really been involved in, in marriage ministry. And she says, your wife here? I said, no, she, she's sick today, but she's coming. She said, I would really like to meet your wife. That's spiritual stuff, folks. You know, I could have just said, nah, I'm not going to say anything. But that little interaction may lead to ministry. But that little bit of action, uh, let them know that the Spirit of God is at work here. This, this person came up and talked to me, would have never talked to me if we weren't in this room. And you know who brought me into this room? Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That's who brought me in this room. That's who brought you in this room. You have to remember that. You just didn't walk in here because you thought this was a cool place to be. That if you are saved, that Jesus Christ, not only did he save you and deliver you and give you his spirit, but he placed you in a body called the church. And now we find that church locally, and now we're here. Just you being here is the supernatural work of God. Do you ever think of it like that? 
Or did I just show up one Sunday? Because if you think of it as the supernatural work of God, it leads you to purpose. Well, if God bought me here, he must have bought me here for a reason. Now you're starting to, what is that reason? And now you're engaged. The church reflects the divine glory and as we grow in Christ's likeness, we point others to God, the source of the glory. God's glory, listen to this, doesn't change, but the consciousness of his glory changes. God is not more glorious or less glorious. We don't make God glory. We don't, we don't make him more glorious, right? I guess that's how you would say it. But the perception of his glory amongst his creation does change. The church is making his glory more visible, more visible, more apparent, and more known. That's what we do. We do that for unity also. Remember, we're not more unified, but we make the unity that we have more visible, more apparent, and more known. That's what Jesus is praying for for in the text for us to display that. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this is the work of God. So you don't go out of here saying, okay, we've got to display more glory. That's not how it works. God is already doing that here. We just need to join him. Amen? Again, the purpose statement in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Purpose statement. We display his glory as a community, so that the world may know that you sent me, again, gospel-facing, and not only that, that you loved them even as you loved me. Going back to the vine motif, right? The love that we have is not in and of ourselves. It's a love that we get from God when we, the branches, are connected to the vine. My last point, the cross-shaped reunion with Jesus. The cross-shaped reunion with Jesus. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Speaking to the disciples during the Last Supper, Jesus noted that he was preparing a place for them. He was giving them the notion that he's letting them know, I'm going to go away, but you're going to see me again. This isn't going to be like any other death. One day, I'm going to go away and you're going to join me and I'm going to be there actively preparing a place for you. I was 
thinking about this text, and the question that came to mind was, do you desire to be with Jesus? Is that a desire of yours? Do you desire to be with Jesus? John Piper, I don't really know exactly what the quote was, but it went something like this. He said, if you went to heaven and all your favorite activities were there, I like the fish. So I had best fishing ever, right? Most pristine lakes, ocean fishing, all the fishing that I could handle. If I could do that, all your favorite foods were there. All your friends and relatives were there. Would you be happy if Jesus wasn't there? It's not an easy question to answer. See, because many of us, and I've had uh, some very dear people pass away in my life over the past couple months, and people say, well, I'll see you in heaven. I can't wait to see you in heaven. And I understand what they're saying. I'm not one of those preachers to say, well, theologically, that's not correct. I wouldn't say that. But here's the thing. I love my grandmother. My grandmother's in heaven. She was a strong Christian. But when I get to heaven, grandma's got to wait. Because I'm there. I want to see Jesus. I want, I want to be with him. I want to see him in all his glory. Grandma, I'm going to see you in a, in a few hundred thousand years or whatever it takes. I'm going to see you and we're going to have a great time. Hopefully we'll go fishing. Right? But I'm there because that's where Jesus is. Heaven is where Jesus is. We want to go to heaven because that's where God is. The one who died for us, who loved us, who's going to bring us into glory. That's where he is. Heaven is not a place for this grand family reunion. It's a place where God is. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's trying to shape our thinking because there's going to be trials. There's going to be persecution. They're going to be killed. And I'm going to tell you this little secret. This is, this is extra, right? At my job, we would say this is value add, right? God doesn't put the same value on your life as you do, right? We put this extreme value on our life that I have to live. I have to live as long as possible. You know, if God loves me, I'm going to be 115, not necessarily. God's purposes may be for you to live to be 35, 40, 19, 2. We don't know that, right? Because what we don't know is we don't know exactly what's on the other side. We just know it's eternity because we don't have a box for it. You know, God tried to explain to us how wonderful heaven is, but on earth, we, we only have so much to compare it to, and it can't be compared to that. But he tries to get us to understand that this life is not what it's all cracked up to be. Eternity is so much better. Primarily because that's where he is. He's trying to set this in their thinking that though some of you, though all of you, except for one, will be killed, I've prepared a place for you. You will be with me. And it's so much better than where you are now. Do you desire to be with Jesus? Because of the cross, 
we get to be with him for eternity, and that's glorious. If, if, if that doesn't move you, stay in the text. Be discipled. Understand what this life is really all about. The end of his prayer, his desire is for us to see his future glory, and he does an amazing thing. He connects Genesis to Revelation. Again, he's letting us know this is not new stuff. My friends, this is something that's been going on since before I created anything. Before the foundation of the world, God loved me. And see, you don't know what a big deal that was because you don't know what a clown I am. But I know. I can see all my sin. And God didn't regret one day that he saved me. God doesn't regret, I don't care what you did, if you are saved, if you are a blood-bought, redeemed person, God does not regret one day that he saved you. And here's the other side of that that I think is even more glorious. That he saved you knowing the sins that you would commit after he saved you. See, we can, we can say, oh, God delivered me, he saved me, and now I'm this pristine person, right? We have, sometimes we have that mindset. But in reality, we know that after salvation, we still sin. Still never regret it for a moment that he saved you. Imagine you married folks. If right before, on, your, on the day before you were married, God was able to give you a list of all the sins you were going to commit the rest of your life. And you got to say, okay, honey, looks like I'm going to do this, 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 this. I'm going to do that. You think you'd be married? Because people aren't like that. Only God is like that. If we want to have the kind of community that we've been talking about here, we must be willing to share in the pain of our neighbor. We must be willing to be misunderstood. We must be willing to be offended for Christ's sake. That's a Christian community. That's a cross-shaped community. That's the kind of community that the power of God dwells in richly. If you want to be a part of that community, submit yourself to the scriptures. Surrender everything to Christ. Take that all of life is all for Jesus, not like some kind of tag, but that's the motto of your life. As we come to the table, we've been, we've been talking about this Jesus who, who saves and who changes us and who unifies us and who glorifies us and who has prepared a place for us. That Jesus we celebrate at the table. No one could do what he did. No one has loved you before the foundation of the world. 
No one has continued to love you and change you and bring you into more Christ-likeness no matter what your struggles. No one has done that but Jesus. And he did it on the cross where the love of God met the judgment of God. And it was beautiful because the judgment that should have been due us was laid on Christ. And now we get to fellowship with him forever. That's what we celebrate at this table. This is so much more than a cracker and some juice. And when you come and you take those elements today, I want you to remember what he's done for us and that this is an eternal blessing that he's given us. Eternal. You gotta love him. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that your voice was heard today. You tell us in your word that your sheep hear your voice. And Lord, I know the place that they hear your voice the loudest is through the preaching of your word. So I pray, Lord, that my voice is so small this morning, but your voice was heard and that we surrender to the commands and to the love that you've given us in your word in this passage today. We love you and we thank you. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.